Today is the finale of the Fuel series, the Ecclesiastes series that we've been doing. So if you have your Bible, if you have your Bible on your smartphone, get that open to chapter 12. Um, We are in the last half of the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you're if you're new here this morning, uh, it's going to be good in that you're going you're to kind of get a, a taste of the rest of the book as we key in on the final verses. Um, I've shared with you before, I'll share again, we don't know for sure that Solomon wrote this book. There's a lot of scholarship that says it was written by someone else. But whatever the case, it was most certainly inspired by the life of Solomon. Um, it is a book that comes out of his life that, that, that gives us an overview of this grand experiment, of this great project that he took on in the book of Ecclesiastes to systematically apply his wisdom, apply his wealth, apply his power, apply his connections, apply his vast learning to all of the places that people go to, you know, 3,000 years ago and today to apply himself to those places that people look to for fulfillment and for freedom, to test the fuels that people have used for thousands of years to power their lives toward meaning and significance and joy. And you know, if you've been here, as he applies himself to this under-the-sun experiment, okay, as looking at, at the world here, not not. Looking at it from a, from a faith perspective as much as looking at it from just a, a feet-on-the-ground perspective here, you know that his conclusion has been, over and over again, the Hebrew word hebel, which the NIV will translate as meaningless. So, so he works through all of these fuels where it says meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. If you have a, a King James Version, it says vanity. Okay, This stuff is, it's not that it has no value. It's not that it can't bring you any fulfillment, but in terms of ultimate value, in terms of what really counts, Solomon says, Hebel, meaningless. Um, He talks about wisdom in chapter 1, verse 18, meaningless. He talks in chapter 2, verse 11, about pleasure, and he says, that's meaningless as well. He talks about money in chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. He says, money can't buy you meaning. It's meaningless. He talks about building projects. He talks about power, and he had a lot of power. He was the king. And he says, all of this is meaningless in terms of giving you a, a fuel that's strong enough and that's lasting enough to take you through life toward the destination that God has for you. All right? The wealth-seeking person, the person who is obsessed with getting more and more, can be possessed by their possessions, right? Um, The industrious person, uh, the workaholic, can become weary by all of their work. And the person who who, who focuses on religion, on religious devotion, on religious activity, that person can just grow fatigued by all of their activity. The success-driven person who has these high and lofty goals when they work hard and they apply themselves and they finally get to that mountaintop, they can be disillusioned. Is it, this is what I was working for? This is what all of my energy and all of my study and all of my networking, this is what it was all about. 
There can be this just sense of shoulders sagging saying, wow, I thought there'd be more. And so here are kind of the bookends at the beginning and the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, how he is going to label us, uh, label his project for us and tell us what's the point of all this. In chapter 1, verse 2, the, the author says this, everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. And then at the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 8, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. So I started with this, with this thesis in mind. I've tested everything. The conclusion holds up. Under the sun, the kinds of pursuits that people undertake, while they may have some limited value, while they may provide some joy, some fulfillment, in the end, they have no ultimate value. They are meaningless. So, in my opinion... Um, and maybe I've gotten some good feedback from you guys on this, so I think you're kind of with me on this. This book is incredibly contemporary, isn't it? I think, this is my opinion, I think the book of Ecclesiastes is the most contemporary book in the whole Bible. I'm not saying the most relevant book, but I'm saying the feel of this book feels more like 2012 than any other book in Scripture. Think about this experiment that Solomon undertook. Um, it is an experiment that most people in most of the world, through most of, of history, simply could not identify with, okay? Uh, because you start the experiment out, and it's like, here's Solomon. He's got just heaps of money. He's got heaps of information and knowledge. He has heaps of leisure time, and he is going to test all of these pursuits, some of them deep, some of them very philosophical, some of them very shallow and hedonistic. He's going to test all of those things. Most of the world simply cannot identify with that at all. In North Dallas, we can. <laughs> I mean, we can. We've got plenty of folks around who have enough money, enough free time, enough connections to explore. Not to the same extent that Solomon did. None of us have those resources. But to some extent, we can get the book. I don't know that someone in Ghana can get this book in the same way that we can get this book. I mean, we're like, yeah, I've tried some of that stuff. He's right. You know, a lot of the world's like, I don't know. I'd sure like to try out the money thing, you know? I mean, but, but we have. We have experimented with that. Um, just a little information for you. Okay, I read this week. In the United States of America, listen closely, in the USA, of people making over $150,000 a year, families making over $150,000 a year, more than a third of those would call themselves middle class, right? Just think about that for a second. And, and some of you, a lot of you probably are in that category, make over $150,000 a year. Over a third would say, yeah, I'm middle class. Let me put that into perspective for you. If you're making $150K a year, you are in the top 3% of the world population in terms of income. You with me? You are in the, that is a really strange way to identify middle class if you're in the top 3% on the planet. But that is the world that we live in and, and the world that we know. And while none of us are as wealthy as Solomon, um, and we can't, we can't undertake the experiment in the same way he did, we can at least picture the experiment. 
that he undertook. Um, so he's going to try out all this stuff and, and see under the sun if, if one of these candidates can deliver on the promises it makes. And as we've said, he comes to the conclusion, Hebel, meaningless. Money promises a lot, just doesn't deliver in the end. Um, sex, pleasure, promises a lot, doesn't deliver in the end. Projects, achievements, successes, promise a lot, don't deliver in the end. So under the sun, there is nothing that, that delivers definitive value. Under the sun, there is nothing. But ah, what if the source for ultimate meaning isn't to be found under the sun? What if there is a holy God who created the world, who stamped his image on us, and who is calling us to something greater than kind of the pinball pursuits that we bounce between here in our short lives under the sun? And that's where the author and the book want to take us. Let's go to chapter 12, all right? We'll start out reading verses 9 and 10. Now, I want you to notice, I just want you to pay attention and see if you notice something, and then I'll tell you what it is in a second. But we've gone through the whole book and see if you notice a change here. Chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise. He taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express the truths clearly, all right? So either the, the words were written, either this book was authored by Solomon or someone else inspired by Solomon, but here's what we know. These verses were not connected directly to Solomon. All of a sudden, we go from first person to third person, we go from the teacher, koalet in Hebrew, from him sharing his experiences to at the end of the book, someone's talking about the teacher, okay? There's, there's a shift there. Um, now, if you know anything about Solomon, you have probably thought about this question at some point, right? The Bible says in 1 Kings that Solomon asked God for what? Anybody remember? Wisdom, A+. plus. Star on your Sunday chart today. Wisdom. And God heard that prayer. God loved that request. God granted that request. So Solomon was given supernatural wisdom. Right? In fact, let's just look at 1 Kings 4.29. 1 Kings 4.29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Great wisdom, great insight given by God to this man. But in spite of all of this wisdom, if you know much about the life of Solomon, you know he did some bad stuff. All right? And not garden variety bad stuff. Really bad stuff. Um, for example, we talked about this early on, and, and I'll kind of take it to, to a place we didn't talk about. Okay, so he built um, palaces, he built temples, he built shrines for the benefit of his wives. He had 700 wives, a lot of them were foreign, and to kind of make them feel at home in Jerusalem, um, he, he gave them places where they could worship the deities from the countries that they left, that they grew up worshiping, okay? That's kind of questionable, I would say. But he even, and, and 1 Kings tells us this specifically, he built 
uh, he built altars to uh, two different gods, one called Kamosh and one called Molech. Now, what is interesting about these pagan deities is they were super bad, all right? The way that you worshipped Kamosh, the way that you worshipped Molech was to sacrifice children. Solomon built those altars right around Jerusalem. So here's where I'm going with this. I'm scratching my head on this. I always have. What's up with this guy? I mean, super wisdom, God-given wisdom, and doing some evil things mixed in with his good things. Well, here's what I was going to bring you. Just, Just a little, this is just a little footnote for you today. If you've ever asked that question, all right? Well, 1 Kings says that God gave him this wisdom. In Hebrew, this wisdom is shakam. This word shakam, wisdom, is also used to describe some other people in the Bible. They're not exactly A-listers, people you may know much about, but one of them is called Ahithophel, and one of them is Jonadab. And they are both, if you go read their stories, if you kind of Google concordance them, you're going to find they're bad guys, all right? They're not good people in Scripture. But the Bible says they were wise Now, this word shakam may be translated as shrewd sometimes, but they were people who were politically very astute, able to make things happen according to their plan. So just to kind of put a a little asterisk on this wisdom thing here um, is that even a gifted teacher, a, a person who knows great wisdom, who can help you live, who can reveal to you some fundamental truths about the direction you need to take, um, even that teacher may not have moral clarity in his or her own life. Right? And that's Solomon. So the conclusion comes along in chapter 12. And we've been waiting for 11 and a half chapters for this conclusion. The conclusion comes in and we have another voice a different voice. This is not Solomon's voice. This is somebody talking about the teacher. And this voice is going to tell us that Solomon was so industrious, all right, just devoted himself to careful study, devoted himself to to categorizing all of these thousands of parables and all of this knowledge. But in many ways, we know from Scripture, Solomon was a do-as-I-say type of person. Not a do-as-I-do type of person, right? In many ways, he was a do-as-I-say, not do-as-I-do type of person. Okay, let's move on. Verse 11 now. The words of the wise, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation today. um, The words of the wise are like cattle prods. Painful, but helpful. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep, all right? So when we encounter the words of Scripture, and specifically here, the words of Ecclesiastes, when we encounter them, when we hear them, when we really, really hear them, they will sound a little bit painful. They will sting a little bit, right? I mean, here we are in North Dallas. We live in a place where financially, materially, we really do act like money is the source of meaning, all right? Money is the way to get there. It's what you need to be successful in life. Um, That's really the way we scoreboard things around here. We really do say money is how you keep score. Um, Now, 
Solomon's working through all this stuff, like money and pleasure and all this kind of stuff that we still chase after today in 2012. And he's saying, no, it doesn't work. It won't get you where you want to go. And they may bring you some fulfillment. They may bring you some pleasure. But in the end, they all fail. That stings a little bit when you have really been pouring your energy into these different pursuits. All right. Again, this, this, this analogy I'm about to use probably wouldn't work in a lot of the world, but it will work here, I suspect. Imagine that you're investing in the stock market, right? Most of the world's not doing that. They don't have money to do that, but a lot of us do. So you are buying stock, and you have gone really all in on a particular stock, all right? You have really put your eggs in that basket, and you get a report from a reliable source telling you that particular stock is way overvalued, right? If you've put your money in that, the report says, get it out as quick as you can because the bottom is going to drop out. The elevator is going to drop on the price of that stock, right? Now, that's a little painful to hear, honestly. I mean, that's been my bread and butter. That's been the place I have put my retirement income. I, you know, that's not good to hear that that's overvalued. But it can be, but the fact that it stings a little bit doesn't mean that it's either bad news or good news. I mean, it is bad news for me if I am just going to continue my investing pattern. I'm going to keep putting a portion of my income into that stock. You with me? All right, that's bad news then because I'm going to lose that. It is good news if I am willing to cut my losses and get out of that investment and move on. All right? It would be good news if you bought up a bunch of Enron stock, Lehman Brothers stock, and you got a warning and you were smart enough to take a loss and get rid of it. It would be really bad news if you kept buying. Enron stock. You with me on this? Well, this is what Solomon is saying in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. He's saying, look, um, if you're investing in these things, they're not going to take you where you want them to take you. They are way, way overvalued in your search for significance, in your search for meaning. Better rethink your portfolio. That's what he's saying from beginning to end in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a little bit like a cattle prod or a nail-studded stick because those are painful words if you've been investing in those things for your whole life. So a shepherd uses pain not to injure the animals under his or her care. A shepherd uses pain to keep them from walking off a cliff. And Solomon, the Bible tells us here, he is using these painful words like goads, like cattle prods, like a nail-studded stick to keep God's people from walking off a cliff. But if you just keep right on investing your heart in what Scripture has revealed to be a bad investment, then you're going to walk off the cliff. So for 11.5 chapters, he's told us all this other stuff is overvalued. Now... Little detour right here. Um, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning and you're here um, as a follower of Jesus, these words, the words of Scripture, are authoritative in your life, or they should be. 
Um, they should, the voice of Scripture should be above all other voices in your life and the decisions you make, whether they're financial, whether they're marital, whether they're relational, whether they have to do with how you use your free time, these words have authority. Um, all right. Now, while, e- while we are the present Christ Church Christ, if you are a member of this congregation, in an important sense, you and I are on a journey together. We are a family in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're on a collective journey. But in another sense, you as a disciple of Jesus are on your own journey with the Lord. All right? No one can pray for you. No one can offer for you. No one can do ministry for you. You are called as a disciple of Jesus to respond to Jesus, to to have your heart respond, to be good soil, and to follow the Lord. Now, where I'm going with this is is this point, which I feel pretty passionate about. Um, We've got um, different groups, okay? We've got people who are exploring, right? Right. and wherever you are in your journey, God bless you. We're at different places. That's okay. We want to stay headed toward Jesus. Maybe you're exploring, okay? You've got questions. You're not exactly sure what you believe. You're at church kind of to nail down your beliefs to try to get some clarity. Maybe you are someone who is growing in Christ. That might describe the rest of us who've made a commitment to Christ. We're trying to work out what that means in our own lives. Um, wherever you're at, I would commend you. Keep your eyes on Jesus um, and, and, and keep following the Lord. But what I want to say is this. We're all at different places, but at some point along the way, if you are to mature in Christ, if you are to grow into the image of Jesus, if you are to come into the kind of fellowship with the God of the universe that God made you to have, you have got to take ownership of your walk. You have got to learn to feed yourself, right? When you're in the, like the exploring stage, I mean, you don't know much about God, you don't know much about the Bible or about church or this stuff, and you show up at church, you're exploring, um, you're going to receive most of your nourishment or your teaching or your ideas from a sermon or from a Bible class or from a small group, something someone else says. But if you are growing in Christ, if you've passed beyond that exploring phase, you now have a commitment with Jesus and you want to grow into who he wants you to be, you've got to learn to feed yourself, Right? And I'm talking about daily time with God. I'm talking about spending time with God on your own, in Scripture, in prayer, developing your relationship with God. I'm not even talking about reading good Christian books. Those are out there. Those are great. Do that. Read those. But time with God in the Scripture because it's the authoritative voice in your life. You know, it was, it was somewhat cute and sweet when my kids were tiny and Isla and I had to feed them, you know? It's like make the airplane noise and get David to open his mouth or Clyde to open her mouth and feed them. But at some point along the way, you want your kids to kind of grow out of that and start being able to feed themselves. And at 12 years old, I am hopeful that someday my 12-year-old son David will use a fork and knife, you know? I think that day it might come. But it's so important that you learn to, that you take ownership for your walk and that you learn to feed yourself um, along the way. That's what a disciple has to learn to do. Um, And there are great Christian men and women at Preston Christ, deep people who've been in this walk for a long time, who are deep in fellowship with God. But guess what? They can't read your Bible for you. 
right? They can't do that for you. You have got to take ownership of that yourself. Okay, moving on. Verse 12. Verse 12. My child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for writing books is endless, and much study wears you out. And let me just point out again how incredibly timely this book is to the day we live in. Here's Solomon saying, look, uh, or, or the author of this part saying, look, um, information is a good thing, but at some point, you, it's like taking a sip out of a fire hydrant. At some point, you can, you can expose yourself to so much information. Either you're writing it and collecting it, or you're just reading up on it, and you can expose yourself to so much that you just tire out, and that can become meaningless as well. And in Solomon's time, that's why I say he was a little bit more like us than most ancient folks, because now, I mean, think about all the, all the information that we have. I mean, you guys, does anybody remember the old days when to know if your team won their game on Saturday night, you had to wait for the paper on Sunday morning and hope that your team wasn't playing in one of those late games that score didn't even make the paper. And now you guys have your smartphone set up, at least I do, where you know like instantly what happened to your team. I mean, we have access to so much information. Some of you are saying, what's a paper? You know, I mean, I don't know. We just have so much information now. Um, weather forecast. You used to have to wait up till 10 o'clock and watch Delcus on TV. Now you know right away. You, you guys are all weathermen. You, you can go to the National Weather Service and know right away what the forecast is. We just have so much information so much advice, so much news. I think at our house we have like 10 24-hour cable news channels. I mean, we got so much information. Some of it is meaningful. Some of it is trivial, but it is constantly flowing. And what can happen is these pearls of wisdom, this voice of God can be drowned out under this flood of emails and texts and Facebook updates and, and having the planet at your fingertips. Um, a, lot of it, a lot of it's just mindless garbage that we're exposed to, right? So verse 12 is really about filtering and about focusing, about choosing where you're going to pay attention. If you don't choose where you're going to pay attention, then you're going to lose interest in everything because you're just going to be bombarded with information and ideas all of the time. Verse 12 says it will wear you out. It's endless. Um, and while, while Solomon didn't have the internet, he kind of had his own personal internet. I mean, he had the money and resources. If he heard, you know, some guy over in Persia knows a lot about antelopes, he could bring the guy in, right, and say, tell me about antelopes. I mean, he had the money to bring the, the, the worldwide web of information to Jerusalem and listen to them personally. So 11.5 chapters, Solomon is mowing down all of the under-the-sun things the world says have weight, have importance, and all of this is leading up to these verses that he is not even going to pen, um, that are going to be pinned for him as a conclusion on his project. And basically what it's going to come down to is you need to, I need to loosen my heart from these other pursuits, and I need to latch on to God. So here we go, verse 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. 
Fear God and obey his commands. This is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. All right? So in an under-the-sun world flooded with information, flooded with chaos, flooded with hurts and joys, flooded with different sets of values, it all boils down to three things. The first one is God exists. He's been looking at under the sun. He's been imagining the world as if God wasn't a factor in the world. Now at the conclusion, this voice comes in and says, but God does exist. There is a place, and it is the place for meaning and significance, and it's not part of this disposable expiration date world that we live in. God is above the sun, and he is moving in our world. I love, and, and I believe that we feel it inside. I believe there, there's this angst. There's this sense that there has got to be something more. Every time we get something we wanted, whether it's good or whether it's bad, every time we get that thing that we've been wanting, it's like, uh, I thought it would be better than this. There's a sense, there's a longing for something that this world cannot provide. C.S. Lewis has the best quote on this, and you've probably heard it before. He says, if I find my, in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Okay? If there's nothing here under the sun that can satisfy me, I was made for another world, for another reality. God exists. Um, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes wants to leave you with. The second thing the book wants to leave you with is this idea. Nothing will escape God. This is good news. Whoever you are, this is good news. Because along with this sense, there's got to be more. There is more than a sense. There is a punch-in-the-face reality that stuff is messed up down here. Right? Young people die young. The good people end up miserable sometimes, right? He's told us this. It seems like the, the evil person, the manipulator, they get ahead and they do accrue a lot of wealth or whatever it is they're after. I mean, there's, a, there's just a... And sometimes good people prosper too. But in this kind of fruit basket where everything's mixed up, we, we just see a lot that's not right. Justice isn't done. And so Ecclesiastes comes in at the end and says, God will make things right. God will judge the good and the bad. And this is news I believe our souls are longing to hear. Your eyes will betray you. Your sense of right and wrong will constantly be alerted and overwhelmed by the injustice in the world. Solomon says, or the book of Ecclesiastes rather, comes in and says, look, what, don't trust your eyes. Know this. God's going to take care of everything. He will, nothing is going to go unjudged by God. And then, I like what um, Albert Einstein's wife, one time, she was asked, do you understand, Mrs. Einstein, the theory of relativity that your husband has come up with? And Mrs. Einstein said, no, I don't understand the theory of relativity, but I do understand Albert. Right? And no, 
as much as study is a good thing, and it really is, as much as insight is a good thing, whether scientific or philosophical or technological or medical or whatever it is, it's a good thing. As much as it is, you and I, under the sun, are never going to understand everything. There will be some unanswered questions, and some of them are pretty big. But if you know the Lord, you can trust in God, that He knows what He's up to, right? Someday it will all become clear to you as well. Number three, third thing Ecclesiastes wants to tell you is you have a purpose, all right? He's been telling us for 11.5 chapters, meaningless. This other voice comes in at the end and says, but there is a purpose that is to fear God and that is to keep his commandments. We've talked about this before. Fear God is taking God seriously. It is waiting his voice above all other voices. It is paying attention to God more than you pay attention to TMZ or Dr. Phil. It is giving God the place that he deserves in your life, the throne of your heart. Fear God and keep his commandments. Take him seriously. Make your objective to grow in Jesus Christ and, and through Christ find fellowship with God. You were made for this. Any other pursuit beyond this will leave you empty. Empty. And part of fearing God means recognizing that he is God and that you're not God. Okay. The text today, interesting thing is we have this, at the very end, this introduction of this idea of a shepherd, and the shepherd is, is shepherding um, this flock of sheep, and, and in chapter 12, the, the shepherd is, is using pain and is shepherding this flock of sheep with this nail-studded stick, and I suppose this is what a lot of shepherds did back in the day. What I find interesting, what I find compelling, what I find deep is when I move into the New Testament and I find a new kind of shepherd. The New Testament, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. He doesn't steer you with a nail-studded stick. He leads us with nail-studded hands. Right? He walked off the cliff so that you wouldn't. He took the punishment and the abuse for all of your sin, all of your wickedness, so that you wouldn't. He knew you couldn't pay that price. You could not have fellowship with God because of your wickedness, because of my wickedness. And so he paid the price, and the nails were driven through his hands. So here's kind of where I want to finish up today, just a word briefly to, to different kinds of people. If you're a skeptic today, I mean, you're just real cynical about all things spiritual, about this book, about God. If you're a skeptic today, I want to challenge you to open up to the possibility of belief to open up to God, to be, to be looking at the world around you and imagining what if there is a spiritual dimension. I believe things will begin to fall into place for you. All right, the second person I want to challenge today is if you're exploring. We talked about this a little bit. Someone who, they're interested in spirituality. They're, they're probably, if they're at church this morning, you're definitely at least an explorer, right? Or I mean, I will probably have some skeptics here too, but if you're an explorer, you're interested, you're opening yourself up to belief, you're considering things. And, and, and what I want to challenge you to do is take your next step on the journey, which is basically to make a decision for Jesus. And let me tell you why this is so important. I mean, I'm reading a book right now called Move, and it's talking about all this research about spiritual transformation and the processes that we see at work. And here's the thing. It's good to be an explorer. 
But the longer you stay in that kind of place of exploration without making a decision, the easier it becomes for you never to make a decision. After you have heard the invitation of Jesus over and over and over and just sat there, either physically or metaphorically, and did nothing, it becomes easy to look at those nail-studded hands and hear that voice of Jesus and just, eh, I may get around to it one of these days. The research says the longer you stay in church with nothing happening, all right, the more difficult it is going to be for anything to happen, for you to eventually make a decision. So urgency becomes just lost in that. And procrastination ends up breeding kind of spiritual passivity. All right. Now, so I guess the, what I'm asking you to do is make a decision for Jesus. Confess Jesus. Be baptized into Jesus. Make that decision to become a follower of Jesus, to be active in that walk with the Lord. The third group I want to talk to is those of us who are, who are spiritually growing at Christ. Big category, lots of different um, places along the journey in this growing in Christ uh, place. Um, I think the call today as he talks about Scripture and listening and hearing and discounting other voices, minimizing other voices, the call is to take ownership of your discipleship. To take ownership of your journey to develop your relationship with God. And as you develop your relationship with God, a funny thing happens, and this is probably not something you expected a preacher to say, but a funny thing happens. But the more you take ownership in your relationship with God and you learn to feed yourself, the less you need church. Now, let me explain that, okay? Let me explain that. The less you need church. You become a resource to the church. You become one of those people that helps the explorers on their journey, that helps the people growing in Christ along their journey. You become a minister in the church. But as far as your own relationship with God, you are so full of God. You show up on Sunday morning just to give and not to receive. And so I would challenge you to grow to the place where you are feeding yourself and you have taken responsibility for your relationship with God. You are intentional about it. You develop daily habits with God and you move closer and closer to God. Let's, let's finish out this morning with a prayer. We're just going to pray and then give you an opportunity to respond in the way that you need to. Father, I thank you for this book. I thank you for a book that looks at the pursuits that real people have, whether they believe in God or, or not. I thank you for telling us the truth. Some of it is comforting. Some of the words we find in your scripture are so pleasant and sweet, and some of them are painful. And Father, I thank you for telling us the truth. I thank you for telling us the hard truths we need to hear and for comforting us when we need to be uplifted. And, and God, I pray this morning for each and every pair of ears in this room, for each and every heart and soul in this place, that you will give us ears to hear, where your words simply don't pass through, but your words stick in our minds and hearts. Well, that seed is planted in good soil, and grows and produces a harvest. And Father, I pray this morning, wherever we're at along our spiritual journey, whatever place we're at, 
that you would call us to move closer to you and that you yourself will move closer to us. And I thank you this morning for Jesus Christ because it is so apparent now through Jesus and through His bleeding hands and feet and through His sacrifice for us that you haven't left this journey all up to us, but that you have closed and you are constantly closing the distance between us and you, Father, by your great love. You are running towards us. And Father, if we would simply turn toward you and listen to you and receive your love, how things would change. And so, Father, that's what we invite you to do this morning, that you would loosen our grip or loosen the grip that these things other than you have on our hearts and that you will call us to latch onto you. You are enough. Your grace is enough. We pray all this in the name of Jesus.